So last week, we, we started what will be a 10-week journey through the New Testament book of 2 Timothy. Remember, in a series we've titled Passing the Torch. Remember that in its most basic sense, uh, this book, which is actually a letter written from the Apostle Paul to his young ministry partner, Timothy, in the most basic sense, this letter was written for the purpose of helping Timothy during a very difficult time to love and follow Jesus. Paul writes this letter for the purpose of discipling Timothy. Now remember, a disciple of Jesus is someone who loves and follows Jesus. And so when Christians engage in discipling, as Jesus has commissioned all of us to do, uh, discipling is simply helping someone else to love and follow Jesus in hopes that they too would help someone to love and follow Jesus and that they too would help someone else to love and follow Jesus. Do we see this cyclical pattern of passing the torch of the gospel to others one relationship at a time? Now, last week we considered the mandate the model, and the motivation for discipling. And I want to take two minutes to just rehash that. The mandate for discipling, of course, being the great commission that we read in Matthew 28 when Jesus gathers all of his disciples and he commands his disciples to go and make more disciples. Now, this includes winning others to Christ, which we call evangelism, but it's discipling. And it also includes growing them up in Christ, which we refer to as discipling. The model for discipling, as we observed in verses three through seven of 2 Timothy chapter one, is this. Discipling is fueled by prayer. It is rooted in relationship, real life-on-life relationship. And discipling is committed to building others up in the gospel. So remember that. And finally, the motivation for discipling was was almost revealed, it was, it was implied to us by Paul in verse one. Everything Paul was about, everything that Paul did was driven by the promise of true and abundant and everlasting life in Christ Jesus. See, contrary to what our culture believes, investing in others is actually an enhancer of life, not a detractor. Those whose lives have been set aflame by Christ are compelled to go and share him with others. And we're not talking about just pastors or just trained theologians. The work of discipling, the work of building a healthy church is the delight-filled duty of all of us, of all Christians. And as Paul demonstrates in the very writing of this letter, we never retire from this wonderful, delight-filled duty, right? We never retire from committing ourselves to one or two or maybe three people for the sole purpose of living life together with Jesus at the center. And all that's required to do that is a little bit of prayer, as we covered last week, a little bit of intentionality, and a clear, simple understanding of the gospel. So for anyone here, I got to thinking about this after I left last week, for anyone here who might need some help with clearly 
understanding and articulating the gospel. Number one, we try to saturate the liturgy every week with that. Number two, we're preaching that hopefully from the pulpit every week. But if you need a supplement beyond that to break it down, I want to recommend this book to you. It's called What is the Gospel? And it's by a guy named Greg Gilbert. It's about 100 pages and it goes through the story arc of scripture uh, and it kind of frames the gospel in a God, man, Christ response story that's very easy to grasp and it's very easy to articulate. So I would encourage you to pick this up. On the other end, I got to thinking for anyone who might need help uh, you know, with super practical ways of discipling others in light of this series, I would also recommend to you the book. I have a library back here, by the way. It's just, I'm just gonna keep pulling books out. I have another book called Discipling. It's pretty profound. It's by a guy named Mark Dever. And so I went ahead and I bought five copies for each congregation. If, if any of you would be blessed by this book and you want to read it, if you would commit to reading it, Find me afterward, and I'll give you a copy of Discipling, which also maps out the gospel as well. It's roughly 100 pages. It shouldn't take you more than a week if you're diligent to read it. Okay, and the, and the whole reason why I emphasize this discipling and trying to nail it down and, and what it means and applying it is because being a follower of Jesus is inextricably linked to helping others to follow him and, and, and love him. Church, discipling is... Christianity, so to speak. Whether we, whether we feel like embracing it or not, whether we think we have time for it or not, because remember, discipling is the means by which God has ordained the spread of his good news. Discipling is the means by which God has ordained the maturation, the, the maturity, the maturation, the sanctification, and the preservation of his church which is why, as, as, uh, as we were reminded this morning, which is why we, we see Paul so tirelessly laboring to continue discipling Timothy as he writes this very letter from the bottommost dungeon of the Roman Mamertine prison. And I'm not gonna go into tons about that. We covered that last week. If you weren't here for that context, you can listen to that sermon. And that sermon ended really well as well. There's a great ending to the end of that sermon. <laughs> so make sure that you check that out. Actually, by God's grace, we didn't post that one. So anyways, so all that to say, go back and have a listen. Um, but, but here's Paul's situation as he writes this. He's cold, he's lonely, he's weary. His own flame is flickering low, but the torch of Christ within him is still blazing onward as he pens this final letter, this last will and testament to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy. Now remember, Timothy, again, context, we're gonna read our passage today. Timothy is the lead pastor of the church in Ephesus. He's young He's missing his mentor and the contempt toward Christianity that really got kickstarted in Rome after Nero blamed the great fire on all the Christians in 64 AD. This contempt that's stirring, this persecution toward Christians that's stirring in Rome is making its way rapidly to the Roman province of Ephesus, the big and influential city of Ephesus where Timothy is stationed. And so with the threat of Christian persecution beginning to stir and build in Ephesus, 
false teaching is making its, it's trying to make its way into the church. And it's a major problem for Timothy that Paul addresses throughout this letter. Timothy was positioned in Ephesus for one of the primary purposes of protecting the church from false teaching, from, from coming in and distorting the gospel. And so Timothy's headspace in reading this letter, he would have, he would have been intimidated, he would have been fearful uh, for defending the exclusive claims of Jesus' gospel. When we do that, in, 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 a, in, a, in a time of false teaching and persecution, uh, accusations of bigotry and narrow-mindedness fall upon Christians who maintain the truth of the gospel, and ultimately, suffering and persecution ensues. Doesn't it sound a little bit familiar, the, the, the tide of, of this? I mean, I, history is starting to repeat itself here in America. And so Paul writes his young disciple to stir him up, to rally him, as I described last week, to encourage him. He writes in last week's passage in verse 6, for this reason, Timothy, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, Timothy, but of power and love and self-control. And this brings us to our passage this morning, starting in verse 8. Would you follow along as I read? Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are well aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant to him, him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the words of your Bible. Uh, as always, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would teach these words to us, these truths to us, that you inspired 
through the pen of the Apostle Paul, I pray that you would uh, breathe into our hearts this morning, that we would be changed, that we would be encouraged, that we would be convicted, renewed, and transformed into the likeness of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Several years ago, I went to a concert with a friend of mine to see a popular worship band. I know that concert and worship band is almost a, 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 an oxymoron or a paradox of sorts, but halfway through this set, the, the worship band set, one of the band members stepped forward and began to preach the gospel, which is always fantastic. However, in his presentation, there were a, a few crucial parts Uh, that like, you know, the part about our sin and rebellion against God, he described it more in terms of just some pretty innocent mistakes that we had all made. And, And then when it got to the part of his description of the Christian life, you know, the Christian life for those who turned away from their mistakes and turned toward Jesus, he described more like a cosmic youth retreat than a life of taking up our crosses. And, and, and following Christ. Basically, in this message, if you were looking for a party, if you were looking for a life of wild fun and dreams come true, then the Christian life was for you. Unfortunately, though, like at no point in time during his message did he mention anything about the, the costliness of dying to our sin to receive the good news of Jesus' forgiveness or the agony Uh, that is involved in putting to death the idols of our hearts in order to treasure Christ more? At no point did he mention anything about the hostility and the hatred that Christians in one form or another will face for following Christ in the midst of a fallen world? None, None of those things were mentioned. And in today's passage, Paul demonstrates a most crucial facet of a discipling relationship. Honesty. Just out of the bat, full disclosure, complete transparency and and realism toward Timothy. In today's passage, Paul reminds Timothy something that he's probably told him since day one when they met in Lystra and then they went on 10 years of missionary journeys. It's a theme that runs throughout this whole letter. This is probably what Paul told Timothy often. Get, get ready for suffering. Prepare. Prepare, Timothy. The, the very persecution that Paul himself is experiencing in Rome is headed Timothy's way. And so Paul writes in verse 8, we must not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. And that word ashamed in the Greek really Uh, it can be described best as we must not be afraid of the disgrace that will come to us for believing the gospel, for loving and following Jesus. We must not be afraid of the disgrace that will come when our Christian friends and leaders like Paul suffer slander and scorn and imprisonment. We must not be afraid, but rather prepare for. And Paul encourages to to share in this suffering for the sake of the gospel. This is the not-so-easy-to-swallow truth about Christianity. 
But the good news for us this morning is that Paul tells us why we don't have to be afraid. Why we don't have to be afraid of suffering on behalf of the gospel. That's in fact what this morning's passage is pointing us to. But we need to back up just a moment to consider why we should expect suffering in the first place. Why we should expect persecution and slander and and, and, and scoffing in the first place. So as your bulletin reflects, the title of my sermon is The Sustaining Gospel. And in the time that we have left together, we're going to consider the two things that I just mentioned. Number one, we're going to consider why we should expect suffering on behalf of the gospel. And number two, we're going to consider why we don't need to be afraid of suffering on behalf of the gospel. Which again, is what Paul is, he's directly addressing that point number two in today's passage. So first, number one, why would we, why should we expect suffering? I tell this story often, but when, when my family and I first moved to Columbus, I went to a local coffee shop that was in our neighborhood on the east side of, of downtown. I sat down and I started reading this book called The Pursuing God by Joshua Ryan Butler. Great book. I was new to the city. Uh, the place was packed. I was excited to be there. And then I started to overhear the conversation that was being exchanged next to me, inches away from me between two young women who were absolutely railing on one of their fellow employees. And I'll make a long story short, the coworker that these women were railing on had just become a Christian. And as a result of his newfound life in Christ, he backed out of being the best man in a wedding of two other coworkers in their department. Evidently, he didn't feel that his involvement in this particular wedding was honoring to the Lord. And these two women were thrashing this dude. They even were scheming up ways they could get him fired from his job and kicked out of the department. And so being the bold and courageous Christian that I am reading The Pursuing God, I covered it up and I walked out the side door. <laughs> I was new to the neighborhood. I was just testing the waters, okay? It wasn't, it wasn't my time to minister yet. So, but my question, what, what exactly made these women so angry that they would malign this dude and scheme his professional demise for simply backing out of wearing a suit for two hours. Why? King David writes in Psalm 14 that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And therefore they become corrupt, their, their deeds are evil, there is no one who does good. Tim Keller comments on that verse, and it's really insightful, that in the Bible, foolishness means a destructive self-centeredness such that fools cannot bear to have anyone over them, and so they ignore God or even deny that he exists. Paul really gets to the thrust of this in Romans chapter 1 when he talks about mankind suppressing the knowledge of the creator and the truth of God in exchange for acting as we desire. We don't want to be accountable to God. And so when a Christian such as this young man is 
thrashed in a coffee shop, when a Christian comes along and begins to reflect God and his righteousness in the midst of an unrighteous world, it breeds agitation and infuriation. See, friendship with the world is enmity with God, but then friendship with God means enmity with the world. This is ultimately why Jesus himself was crucified. Because standing his ground that he was and is God, he refused to endorse humanity in their sins. His very righteous presence was an indictment against an unrighteous world, and he was despised for it, just like the prophet Isaiah foretold would happen 700 years before Jesus hit the planet. And so Jesus says to us in John chapter 15, if the world hates you, know that it has first hated me. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If they persecuted me, church, they will also persecute you. And all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they don't know him who sent me. If we are accurately representing Jesus' gospel, the news that apart from repentance and faith in the redemptive work of Christ crucified, there is no hope of wholeness and healing and forgiveness in this world. No hope of everlasting and abundant life in this world or the world to come. If we are accurately preaching this very message that the world is trying to suppress and ignore, there is going to be backlash, which is why Paul says he's suffering in verse 12. This is why Phygelus and Hermogenes and everyone else in Asia in verse 15 has deserted Paul. This is why we should expect suffering and hostility for backing out of a wedding, why we should expect no promotion when we haven't fudged the numbers like everyone else in our department. This is why we should expect teasing on the playground or in the lunchroom when we don't participate in the trends or in some of the trends because they don't bring honor to Christ. Our righteous presence reminds an unrighteous world of the righteous God they're trying to forget. And conversely, if, the cor- if in the course of our lives, if we're not experiencing any suffering whatsoever, I think it is entirely fair to ask ourselves, are we rightly and brightly reflecting the gospel? Have we succumbed to the hide-it-under-a-bush Christianity that our relativistic culture demands of us? Are we so tucked away into the separatist subculture of Christian sports leagues and Christian bookstores and Christian cruises and Chick-fil-A that we virtually have no contact with the real world? Yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, my pleasure. Are we modeling for our Timothys, our children and and our Timothys? Are we modeling and teaching them that rightly shining the light of Christ in a darkened world is going to be costly? And yet on the same hand, there's, there's, are we teaching them that there's no greater joy 
No greater source of life than a life lived on gospel mission, torch in hand, lighting the way to eternal life. We telling them that. We showing them that. Guys, who's your Timothy? Are you reminding him of these things? Ladies, who is your Timothy or Tim- Timothea? <laughs> Are you preparing her for these things? Because it only takes about 30 seconds on social media to see that the nominal Christianity of the West is fading quickly. Difficult times are brewing, but we don't have to be afraid. Number two, why we don't have to be afraid of suffering on behalf of the gospel. Number one, underneath number two, if that's confusing enough, I have three. Number one, because God will sustain us through our suffering by the power of his gospel. That sounds confusing, but it's actually quite simple. In verse eight, Paul tells Timothy not to be ashamed, not to fear disgrace and suffering for the gospel, but to endure by the power of God. And this power of God, Paul immediately grounds back in the gospel itself in verse nine. Back in the power of him who saved us and called us to a holy calling, as Scott was sharing, a holy, set-apart, righteous calling, not because of our works, not at all, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. In other words, just as Timothy's salvation never depended on Timothy, neither will his endurance through suffering. In fact, Timothy's endurance will depend entirely on the power of God to finish what God started before the ages began, before the foundation of the world. The same gospel that saves us from sin sustains us through suffering to the glory of God. The very power of God will be present in our remembering and believing the gospel afresh that the wages of our sin, church, was eternal death. That's what you and I deserve for disobeying an eternal God, which we have all done. Nevertheless, God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died as our substitute to pay the penalty for our sin, and he was raised in order to award eternal life to those who trust him. So what I'm trying to get at is that the very power of God is present in our remembering that gospel afresh. It seems foolish, but it's true. There is a reason why many of the early reformers, when they were being burned at the stake, they would recite Psalm 51, being burned under uh, Queen Bloody Mary's rule. And they they would cry out from being burned at the stake, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Purge me, Lord, even here on the stake. Purge me and wash me and clean me and I'll be whiter than snow. Create in me, even now, a clean and holy heart and renew a right spirit within me. They would cry out, restore to me, right here at the stake, the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now imagine how foolish that would have sounded to unbelieving bystanders watching their execution. Unless, of course, 
those unbelieving bystanders were saved by a powerful gospel testimony such as this, which we'll consider in a moment. God has determined that this little story we call the gospel, the good news of forgiveness in Jesus Christ, he's determined it to be the very power of God to sustain and, as Paul writes in verses 12 and 14, to guard those who have been saved by it and entrusted with it. And so for us, let's, let's land this in the now. Should we lose our job on account of the gospel, do we not believe that God and his power will be there with us? Should we lose the respect of our family members and friends and community members on account of the gospel as Paul is, is, is readying Timothy for? Can we not believe that God's power will meet us there? Should we one day be imprisoned like Paul? God's power will be there. Should we one day be sentenced to death? God's power will be there in his gospel. The very message that sounds foolish enough to save us is foolish enough to sustain us and sanctify us and to make us holy and to to, to make us look like the one who saved us, Jesus. So who are we telling all this to? Who's your Timothy? Who's your Timothy? The second reason uh, underneath point number two that we don't have to be afraid of suffering is because the disgrace of the moment is no match for the grace of eternity. The disgrace of the moment is no match for the grace of eternity. Paul writes in verse 10 that Christ has abolished death and therefore brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The same power of the gospel that saves and sustains and sanctifies and guards keeps us forever, for eternity. Meaning, the disgraces and the sufferings we face in this short life will ultimately be a blip on the radar in comparison to the forever life in God's glorious presence that is coming. Scott nailed this home during this morning's liturgy, and I would, I would continue. This is the very idea that Paul's trying to communicate in Romans 8, 18, that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Tim Keller says that, God will always give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knew. That means that if we could just get a taste of the glory that will be, we would would welcome the trials that refine us into Christ's image and prepare us for that glory. We would welcome them. Paul had a vision for this glory. His eyes were set on it. And it and it, and it sustained him, this, this gospel that he, he pictured so much glory in, it sustained him through multiple imprisonments and hardships and beatings and ultimately execution. And so when we're teased at school or mocked by a neighbor, when we're called a bigot on account of the gospel, we, we do believe that, that we actually deserve much worse than that. But we should also rejoice that our momentary troubles are just that. 
They're momentary. And they are purging us of worldliness so that we can comprehend and apprehend more of Christ in the process and root to glory. Finally, a third reason, last reason why we don't have to be afraid of suffering. Can you hear me in the back? Yeah? I'll speak up. Because through our suffering, God is working for the salvation of others. There is a reason why Paul and Timothy share in suffering for the gospel rather than bunkering down until Jesus gets back. There is a reason why Paul exhorts Timothy in verse 13 to keep following in the midst of these trials and persecutions, keep after the sound words you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Through Timothy's suffering for the sake of the gospel, God is saving people. Through Paul's suffering for the sake of the gospel, God is saving people. In chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says that he endures all of this for the sake of the elect. The Lord knows who are his, Paul writes in 2.19, which is the basis for Paul's encouragement to Timothy. Keep sharing in the suffering. Keep passing the torch. Keep teaching. Keep preaching and discipling, knowing that God will save his people and Timothy's suffering will bear fruit. The question, I guess, becomes, is someone else's eternal salvation worth my temporary suffering? Thank God that for Paul, it was worth his temporary suffering. Thank God that for Timothy, someone else's salvation was worth his temporary suffering. And of course, there's, man, we're becoming in the likeness of Christ. Holiness is being added to us as we suffer. So uh, it, it, this isn't just the exclusive reason, but thank God that Peter and John and Mark and Andrew and Thomas and Stephen, thank God for them, someone else's eternal salvation was worth the temporary suffering. And then on throughout church history, Polycarp and Justin Martyr and Perpetua of the fourth century, William Tyndale, Margaret Pohl, Hugh Latimer, and Nicholas Ridley, who, who prayed out, who cried out, Psalm 51 being burned at the stake, and people were saved from it. Thank God for Jim Elliott and Nate Saint. Do we see that we are all disciples of Christ because these disciples, empowered by the gospel, continued to make disciples in the face of disgrace and suffering to their joy and God's glory? Thank God that Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, as the writer of Hebrews 12 explains, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He didn't like the shame, but he saw through it and is now seated at the right hand of God, uh, right hand of the throne of God. And then the, and the writer continues, consider him, consider this Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, a hostility that he did not deserve. He, he knew no sin, but he did so so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. My prayer for us is that we would get a fire of gospel truth 
inside of us, that we would comprehend a picture of future glory so brilliant and beautiful and bright that no matter what may come our way in workplace or school or at the gym or anywhere else, we will continually, brightly and rightly represent the gospel that saves and while in the midst of trial, trusting and being joy-filled by the fact that we are becoming the very likeness of Christ in the process, refining us. And so with that, let's pray together and we'll end this time. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the challenge that Paul issues to continually immerse ourselves in this truth that since the beginning of time and even before you were scheming a salvation that would not be according to what we did, but according to the perfect and immaculate life of Jesus whom you would send as a substitute to live in our place, to die in our place, and to rise in our place that we could come back into relationship with you and that when you look upon us and hear our prayers, you hear and you see the very righteousness of your son. Praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.